This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Andres Un on his recent travels through the Approach Project, his thoughts on Asia, and we have a conversation on technology across artificial intelligence, blockchain and cryptocurrency, autonomous vehicles, and virtual and augmented reality. Hi, Andres. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. How are you today? I'm good. You have been traveling for a while and now you're based back in Singapore, right? That's correct. And I'm talking to Andres Inc., partner at Approach. And there was a time when I spoke to your wife, I think sometime about two years back, where we talk about your ambitious journey to actually travel across 10 countries. And I think some parts of it in Asia and you're working, have been working with startups and also corporates in the different ecosystems. And so today, we are going to do something really different because we had lunch recently and we have a pretty interesting conversation on technology. So Andres, it's really great to have you on the show because your background, there's a lot of things that we can talk about. So to start, how do you start your career? So I'm a technologist at heart, been interested in technology and you know specifically computers since a young age. I did study computer science at university in Stockholm, Sweden, where I'm originally from and where I did spend the beginning of my life. I ended up at the first startup company, well, when I was leaving university, and this was the beginning of 2006. So it was a company called Stardoll, and we were building essentially paper dolls online. So it was a gaming company, a web-based gaming company targeting an audience of girls aged 7 to 12 give or take, so a quite underserved demographic at the time. So I joined that company without any specific role, really, because I randomly got in touch with the CEO running the company, and he thought, good profile, let's get this guy on board, let's figure out something for him to do. So I ended up working as a developer, and then relatively shortly thereafter as an engineering manager for, for that team, but didn't stay for that long, because at the company, I got to know one of the co-founders of what would eventually become Spotify, the music streaming service, which is also originally out of Stockholm, Sweden. And we started talking in you know the spring, early summer of 2006, about what would eventually become Spotify. And at this time, it wasn't even that clear that it would be a music service. I mean, it was, you know, some kind of content streaming service online. I ended up joining him and his co-founder as uh, the company's first employee and CTO. So I built tech and product there quite early after the company got off the ground in, in August 2006. We decided to focus everything on music, but it took a long time for that company to be able to launch because it took a long time to get the commercial licenses for it. But ultimately in August well, in October 2008, so more than two years after starting the company, we did launch the service and now it's grown to tens of millions of users all over the world and um, very successful. I ended up leaving the company about three and a half years in because even though it was still small compared to what it is today, to me, it was a big company at the time. You know, I felt I wanted to do something new and I, I left ostensibly to start another startup with a group of friends. We, we started working on prototypes in, in a different field around calendars, time management, kind of building a, a hub for planning your work and social life. But all of us got pulled into different directions, I ended up doing a lot of consulting, mostly for the investor side. So that company never got off the ground. 
But about a year and a half later, I did start a company with partially that group, partially a different group of people, which uh, is called Wrap. The company is still around, though it's been through a couple of quite big product pivots on a high level in kind of a mobile offers distribution space. We started the company in the beginning of 2000, raised a lot of money from prominent investors, expanded the company, were cloned by Rocket Internet and many other companies all over the world. So we were fighting them off. Within three months, we grew from having only an office in Stockholm to having people in 18 countries. So it was a very, very hectic period. Eventually, I moved to San Francisco as, as part of this, and they ended up staying there for about three years. At one point, my wife, Lisa, who was previously on your show, and I were in, in SF and figured you know, the Bay Area is amazing. It is the epicenter of tech innovation in the world, but there is a lot of interesting things going on in, in other places. So we set out on this journey that you talked about previously on the show called Approach with a plan to live for six months at a time in, in 10 different countries. So the 10 countries that were going to be the biggest economies of the future in, you know, 20, 30 years or so, according to current projections. And the first one that we lived in was Indonesia. So we lived in Jakarta and this was in 2015, beginning of 2016. But during this whole period, we, we've had Singapore as a base. So we set up a company here in Singapore to support this project. We gave birth to our son here about two years ago. After sort of finishing with the Indonesian part of the project, we moved to Berlin. So Germany was the second country. So, so this list of countries, of course, includes <clears throat> a mix of you know already big established economies and a lot of emerging ones. After that, we actually came back to Singapore. And now we have more of a, a proper base here. I guess we've gotten a little bit more comfortable becoming parents and everything. So we're, we're a bit more opportunistic about this project now. The last six months, give or take, we've been working with two companies in Mumbai, in India. So we've been commuting to Mumbai on, you know, once or twice a month, but still living in Singapore. So we've done kind of an India light version of the project. And we are based in Singapore now, but we're always on the lookout of, you know, interesting opportunities to keep learning more about these countries. There's a blog for the project on our website, approach.world, which isn't you know, too up to date, but you can check it out. So before I ask you, the other question, so I'm going to be a bit non-linear about it. So I've interviewed your wife, Lisa, previously on the show. How has your travels in Asia been and what have you observed across Asia Pacific? It's It's been great. Uh, I, mean, I really love this part of the world and it's an amazing place to be. Probably many of your listeners have seen the map that was posted to a map subreddit quite a few years ago where someone drew a circle on the world map, which is a quite small circle, which, which kind of just barely encompasses China and India and is centered roughly around on Southeast Asia. And there are as many people living inside of that circle as outside. So, you know, we are by quite a margin in the most densely populated part of the world. And I do think this is part of the world that will have a very major influence on the world going forward. So it's it's a very interesting place and time to be here. In terms of startups, I think, so let's take a step back. In terms of technology, I think Asia is an amazing place to be because it's so optimistic about the future. So I'm originally from Europe and I feel when you talk about technology in Europe, there's often a lot of pessimism around it. People prefer to look to the risks and the negative aspects of, of more technology in society. Whereas in Asia, there's usually a focus on the positive, on the opportunities and how this can grow the economies and make society better, etc. Create more opportunities. And probably the US, it's somewhere in between where you have a mix of some very optimistic people in the Bay Area, say, and maybe others that are more like Europe. But in Asia, generally, people are very positive about opportunities around new technology, which, you know, as a technologist, of course, it's nice, a nice environment to be in. In terms of startups, I think what you do see here is, is what you do see in most, most other parts of the world out, outside of the Bay Area. So like mo most most business models that are being launched here are local versions of things that have been done elsewhere. 
So it isn't that easy to find, you know, genuinely new things. That's not surprising. I mean, it's the same in Europe. You know, it makes a lot of sense. If you're going, like starting a company is a highly risky venture. So if you're going to take a lot of risk, you of course want to reduce as much risk as you can. So if you can take product risk out of the equation or minimize it, then, then you do. So if, there, if you see services that are successful elsewhere, but don't exist in your local market, it's kind of an obvious first step, at least to duplicate them here. But it also means you're not necessarily seeing that much truly new or innovative. And, you know, in more or less every country or every region in the world, there's been some attempts to build, you know, a silicon this or a silicon that or some local challenger to Silicon Valley. I think those tend to not be very successful and not able to recreate what made Silicon Valley a very special place, except except increasingly one place, which is, you know, the region around the Pearl River Delta in China, where I do think grow into something which will be a contender for you know, Silicon Valley's claim to be the epicenter of tech innovation. So that, that's very interesting to follow from a bit of a closer distance here being in Asia. I presume that, like, I think you're also starting to see Asian companies that are truly innovative. I don't think bike sharing came from the US or any parts of the world. It came from China. Absolutely. You're starting to see a different kind of Asia dominance that's going to take place in this region. But before I get to the main subject, because we are here to kick out about technology, I wanted to ask you because you definitely have a very interesting background being a former CTO of Spotify, co-founder of Red, where you fought the Summer Brothers from Rocket Internet. So in your career journey, what are the interesting career lessons you can share with my audience? I haven't had that much of a plan for a career. I think, you know, I'm one of those people whose career only kind of makes sense in hindsight. So there hasn't been like a grand plan for what I wanted to achieve. What I do think I've been open to and what I do recommend people to be open to is when opportunities surface, then, you know, do take the risk of grasping them. It may be safer, more comfortable to kind of stay at, you know, wherever you are, you know, join a big company, whatever it is. But you'll certainly get an accelerated learning by joining or starting a company yourself. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, your own company, at least not the first few times. There's nothing wrong with joining someone else's startup. If you're an early employee, you can still, you'll get the great learning opportunities. You'll be able to shape the company. You'll be able to grow with the company. So I, I do think there's something to be had for, not necessarily everyone needs to be a founder. There's there's a lot of like find founder hype around the world. Everyone should start companies. I think it's great when people do, but there's also nothing wrong with joining already existing companies. In general, I think, especially in technology, you need to be constantly learning. You need to be stay on top of things. Things are changing at an you know increasingly faster pace. So it's we're in a field where the rate of change is, is also accelerating. So unless you're passionate about these things, it's going to be a lot of hard work to stay on top of things. You know, ideally, if you're going into this field, you should do it because you have a passion for technology, even if you're not a technologist, because you're going to need to keep up with things in order to be able to stay relevant and come up with new ideas. I enjoy your refresh honesty on talking about like everything. Sometimes the lessons you think about is actually on hindsight and hindsight is only 80-20. And I think there's very few people who actually talk about it in that way. Today, what we want to talk about is technology. Because something that I always interview people on business and what is already happening in this region. But I think it is interesting because you came from the two worlds, I think from Europe, US, and then you now come to Asia and then you start looking at technologies in a very different way, probably from a very could be very ivory tower down to very practical approaches. So I had in mind four technologies that I'm thinking about because I've seen the recent Edison Horowitz summit on where they are actually positioning this for 
technology. So in no order of preference, I'm going to talk to you about artificial intelligence, blockchain or cryptocurrency. We will bundle them together and autonomous vehicles will be not just drones and cars, could be other things as well and the virtual and augmented reality space. So I'm going to start off with, we would define a few, the business opportunities and where technology really is and what are the real interesting ideas that we can think about. How about artificial intelligence from your viewpoint? How do you define it and where do you see the business opportunities are now? I think you said like, you know, in order of preference, but I do think this is the big one, you know, not just of the, the four fields that you listed, but arguably of any human endeavor ever, whether we will achieve it. Artificial intelligence, since, you know, the emergence of the field in the 60s has been going through a couple of cycles and there's been a couple of AI winters where people lost faith and this is never going to work. And now we're definitely in, in one of those hype cycles. A lot of interest in the field. A lot of people are going into it. A lot of companies are, are going into it. A lot of money is going into it. And that's great. And we're seeing a lot of tangible results, a lot of new achievements academically as well as in business. And, and uh, all that's amazing. You know, whether that means that this is a cycle when, when we achieve you know, true artificial general intelligence, you know, something that is on, on the level of a human mind or beyond, it's, it's impossible to say. But I think eventually it will happen. I base that belief on kind of a materialistic view of the world. I don't think there's anything specific there isn't anything unnatural about the human mind it's just you know a very very complex aggregation of matter and and, and energy and information that, that happens to create the consciousness and there's nothing that would lead me to believe that we couldn't have something similar on a different substrate so you know what would exists on our biology could also exist on a silicon substrate or on, you know some other computational platform and if you do believe in this then ultimately it's only a question of time right it's a question of like how long time does it take to you know whether it's about reverse engineering the human mind and recreating something similar or you know building kind of a more bottom-up you know general artificial intelligence I don't know what approach is, is most likely to work, but I think we will uh, ultimately get there. And that that's, in a sense, you know, the most important invention that we will ever make. You know, some would even say it's our last innovation or invention, not necessarily because it will wipe us out, though that's a risk that we should take seriously and consider, but also because at that point, then we have an invention that we'll keep inventing. So it'll fundamentally change not only what it means to be human, but also society and life on this planet and beyond. So that's like the major one, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that's kind of how you build a business around it, because this might be 10 years away, it might be 100 years away, you know, likely it's somewhere in between. Very hard to predict more precisely. We are seeing a lot more limited wins in the field. I think the, the major area in the last couple of years has been around computer vision, you know, image recognition of various kinds. There I see some very interesting things. I think one, one thing I believe strongly in, if you want to talk about more direct hands-on approaches that are commercially applicable here and now, is computational photography. I mean, right now we're taking photos more than ever with our phones every day, everyone posting them online, etc. We're filtering these photos and, you know, we're making them look better and we're editing them and so forth. But I think this is very early days in terms of how photography is going to work in the future. I think in not too many years, really any photo that we take will be a true representation of some of a scene that, that actually did happen in reality. I think we're going, when we snap a photo, what is actually going to happen is that our camera takes hundreds of photos and then a narrow AI composes them into the best possible representation of what we wanted to take a photo of. So if you 
think kind of a good example of this is if you take a photo of a group of people, it's difficult to get everyone to not blink and look into the camera at the same time and smile and, you know, look their best. So why, you know, should you have to just take a couple of hundred photos of them within the matter of a few seconds and then let the software edit that into the perfect group photo? And I think this will be applied to pretty much any photo we take. So we'll have things that look just the way we wanted them, but not necessarily a representation of what actually took place. This is all fun and good when it's, you know, about taking the best Instagram photo or whatever platform we'll be sharing these on. But it also has a lot of interesting applications for how do we evaluate photos or videos as, you know, a true representation of the world. And if we see a video of you know, someone making a speech on the news, how do we know that that's actually what they said? And this isn't just a, a recreation. Probably many of your listeners have already seen some of these examples from academic research. And I think we're just going to see more and more of this. And it's going to get challenging to know, more challenging to know what's real and what isn't. Maybe this leads us to your next field, because one proposal that's been made of, you know, how do we address this is that essentially any report of anything would need to be cryptographically signed. And maybe this will happen on a blockchain. So if, if a reporter interviews someone, then, you know, that reporter would sign interview and publish it so that we can check that, you know, at least we have someone who claims that this is actually what happened. Just before we move to the blockchain piece where the encryption and the immutable transaction piece, I have worked in artificial intelligence in the early 2000 when I was using a lot of the machine learning algorithms for example, supervised, unsupervised, or deep learning into looking at human genome data. I think that's probably the first real big data set that I've ever seen that I could actually plow it through. And part of what why machine learning is becoming so prevalent today and it's only owned by mo- mostly the big companies like Google, Baidu, or Microsoft is because of the sheer amount of data that has presented itself that allows these algorithms to really exemplify its powers. But one thing that I often like to ask people who work in these fields is about overprediction. Is about overprediction because this is something that in machine learning, I think if you are a scientist who work on it at any instant in time, you will always talk about overfitting. So the question then is, how do you make machine learnings to stop that overbiasness towards something? I, I just want to get a sense of your thoughts on, on that because in the same camera analogy, right, you take a picture of people and then you choose the best picture. Does it have a sense of trying to overfit? Or maybe just because it's trying to pre- present the best picture, it eliminates some of the more interesting constraints that might be there. No, I suppose that that can happen. I think a hedge against this risk is that we we will not have, you know, one team and one company doing this. We'll have many. So, you know, there's there's sort of a second order selection process happening in the market. You know, whether it's about someone has a bias in their credit scoring application for giving out credit or whether it's, you know, a bias in how they select the best photos. If it doesn't lead to good results, ultimately, you know, someone else's technology will win over it and, and replace it. So I think there is some, you know, we have, we have a second mechanism here that keeps us honest, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think something like what the OpenAI guys are trying to do, right? They're trying to make sure that there is always competition, that they don't limit the machine learning algorithms to just the big companies who owned it, right? Because then and there's no way for people like you and I can think about how to innovate on top of that. Yeah, it's also a question of like access to computational power and, you know, increasingly dedicated circuitry to this. But, you know, so far, you can say there's a risk of, of, you know, some companies monopolizing this power. So far, that doesn't seem to be what's happening. You know, arguably, machine learning technology is more accessible to anyone, including an individual developer now than, than ever. And the same for computational power, which can be bought very fluidly online on all of these cloud platforms, you know, including Google's TPUs that are also now being made available on their cloud platform. So like so far, it doesn't seem to be going in the direction of some companies monopolizing this. It's rather, it seems to be 
getting more and more accessible. That's right. And also, it seems to innovations are coming in from very unlikely places. For example, I've seen what Google and Cisco are using it to do basically look at the reliability, security, and encryption of data in the data centers, right? And then you also see things like in Japan, where crop farmer using TensorFlow to basically trying to work out which are the good cucumbers and the bad cucumbers just by scanning it because the only person who knows how to select was the mom. And, and it's pretty interesting on how they think about in terms of these kind of applications of artificial intelligence being limited. And of course, moving forward, because you talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency, there's a lot of things happening. We have a big hype cycle that happened and it just crashed. I don't know whether the crash is still continuing, but where do you see blockchain and cryptocurrency, the space itself, and what the opportunities are and where technology really is? Yeah, I mean, I would say crash is quite relative, right? I mean, sure, Bitcoin as such is down to whatever half or so of its peak, but it's still up a lot on a you know, year-to-year basis or, you know, the growth so far has still been incredible. We'll see where it goes from here, but probably the most hyped field of all at the moment. And there's there's a lot of shady stuff going on. But what I do think is the most, you know, high level, the most interesting aspect of all of this, kind of what, what I think you alluded to in your segue into this topic where, you know, innovation is coming from so many different areas. You know, there's, I think that's the beauty of open innovation or permissionless innovation that, it, you know, new ideas and new implementations can come from anywhere. No one needs to kind of get anyone else's permission to try something out. Of course, most things are not going to work. That's always the case. But as long as people get the opportunity to try, we will see the most, you know, the best ideas, the best technology, the best companies, etc. They'll, they'll bubble up to the top. For me, the most interesting part of the blockchain technology and the currencies is that at least for now, it's opens up the financial world to this kind of permissionless innovation that has been incredibly successful in other fields. So it is sort of the fundamental decentralized design philosophy of the internet where you have a rather dumb network at the center and then you know you have all the intelligence, all the smartness at the edges, the node to the network. That allows anyone who, who can connect the machine to the internet, which is increasingly everyone, to innovate on their end. And you know, at least in principle, that innovation is then available to anyone else on the network. And that's how you've had so many new amazing things appear in such a short frame of time. The field of finance and banking and currencies is is the opposite of this, right? I mean, you've had a lot of innovation on, on Wall Street, maybe not all of it beneficial, but it's all sort of within a club of, you know, somehow approved entities, right? It hasn't been something that any individual or any company anywhere in the world has, has been able to really partake in. And the blockchain and cryptocurrencies enable that. So, you know, anyone who has any idea for how a currency should work or how some financial instrument should work or, you know, some other things around this should work, they can give it a try on this technology, challenge a lot of existing hierarchies for how projects are funded, who can participate, kind of opens up startup investing to everyone, like any retail investor. All of this is very, very interesting in principle. Like the the, the nation states are fighting back already, like the powers that be are fighting back and we're seeing more and more regulation around this. And, you know, increasingly ICOs are not open to people who live in the US because the SEC won a lot of et cetera, and you see more and more, you see China cracking down on a lot of things around Bitcoin. So various parts of the world, it's getting harder, but there's still many parts of the world where people are still you know, relatively freely innovating around with this. And some people will get burned. Some people will lose their money. Uh, investments in, in unproven things are always going to be very risky. But I think the world as a whole will win because all of these different attempts to do things, even though some of them are scams, many of them are real. All of these attempts to do things are going to lead to some new interesting stuff that is eventually successful and 
it's impossible to predict exactly what that's going to be, but that's also what makes it interesting. Ultimately, that will become available to everyone. The concept of blockchain, which I think has a deeper implication in the internet, and I think, let me just point out the principles behind it, right? It has to go through three things. One is it must be decentralized, peer-to-peer. It has to have a proof of work, or now in Ethereum, not language, we call it proof of stake is also a possibility. And the third piece is actually digital scarcity. That means there's a form of demand and supply to create the economy by itself. And what is interesting to me in blockchain, and I, I find this, I think the best example is to look at a Brave, the browser, which is issuing basic attention tokens. And you, the user who's going into websites, you are putting tokens into Brave to pay the publishers who are publishing on the internet on that. This is very, very different from the model that we are used to today with Google, Facebook, where they are the centralized aggregators and there is no benefit to the consumer that is on it. And the way I've been looking at blockchain is that I see that there is the next step in internet evolution. Obviously, we don't know it's going to work or not, but do you see that potential of the blockchain technology from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. People, like, ever since the internet's becoming mainstream in mid-90s or so, people have been trying to do various versions of micropayments, pay a cent through this article or whatnot, and it hasn't worked ever. I think fundamentally why it hasn't worked is because it takes some, make a purchase decision, puts quite a bit of cognitive load on your mind. If the transaction is too small, then the transaction, the cost of just doing the transaction vastly outweighs whatever amount is you're paying so that you know it doesn't make sense you know possibly brave and the attention token and the teams behind that have you know worked out something that will work i think it remains to be seen it's you know as i said this is this is the beauty of it 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 allows people to try different models if they work they will fly if they don't they'll be forgotten and something else will happen instead so that's cool we'll see i mean when it comes to how things will be organized in the future i think there's a lot of even more like fundamentally challenging things happening on, on top of this technology where people are building you know distributed applications but also entirely distributed organizations on top of various types of blockchain technology. Some people in the BitNation project are even trying to create, like recreate some of the things, you know, a way to organize people and provide some of the services that are typically provided by nation state governments and, you know, a very much more sort of disconnected, federated way. So, so I, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. As I said, the beauty of it all is that people, people get to try different things that haven't been possible to try at scale before. Now they can. And this is the beauty of the, the blockchain, right? It, it may be that the correct innovations is not what we are perceiving it as of today. It could be something that comes from a very unlikely place. I mean, like, for example, when you have the internet where you're having URLs, people buy URLs, people build websites, and then people having difficulty in making transactions, and then the Ajax or what we call Web 2.0 today, the technologies allow new technologies, and then with the smartphone and enable online to offline applications. I want to shift it a little bit towards the autonomous vehicles space. That's a space that I'm pretty familiar with, with drones and cars. The ability from bits to shift atoms before you can really touch atoms of course where do you see that space as well i mean i have a different view to it but well thoughts in terms of drones and cars i mean self-driving cars we're talking about i mean let's start with the cars that's a little bit like in terms of like transporting people it's a little bit closer at hand even though there's a lot of interesting stuff happening around sort of urban aerial mobility as well and that would be amazingly cool if it takes off. But in terms of cars, I think it'll it'll kind of reshape. I think it'll reshape the way cities look as much as 
you know, the introduction of the traditional car did. But I think it's still kind of an op- open question whether it's going to make cities more or less dense. You know, you could say city centers will become denser if we don't need to use as much space for roads and parking because you know, cars drive themselves away and park somewhere else when they're not used or they're shared by a lot of people. So we have fewer of them. But it could also mean that people are willing to accept longer commutes because they don't have to drive themselves. So they can do something useful while they're commuting. And this may be less applicable to a place like Singapore, which is you know, very constrained in terms of area. But for you know a typical American city, maybe it'll just lead to even more suburban sprawl. People will have bigger, bigger gardens and live further and further away from each other, but still commute into a city center to work together. We'll see. It could, could pull in either direction. At least I think it's quite clear that it'll make cities look very different. If I were a city planner now, I'd, I'd have a very difficult time knowing how to invest. Right? It doesn't even make sense to build things like rail for urban transportation if people can get you know, from point A to point B much cheaper and without having to drive and have them a lot closer to each other, even forming sort of virtual trains of cars. But working is becoming decentralized and also the communication networks are getting better. So do we really need to commute to work? I think that's also the other question, right? Yeah, it's similar to sort of the paperless office, which was predicted at one point. And I think people are kind of probably printing more than ever. Like similarly, you know, people said that with you know, video telephony and whatnot, we wouldn't have to meet. And I think people are probably flying to see each other for physical meetings more than ever as well. So perhaps, you know, your next topic out of the four, you know, VR and AR is an answer to this. But so far, I don't think anything has, has come anywhere near to replace the physical meeting. So it's like whether it's, I mean, obviously when you're traveling for fun, but, but also when you're traveling for work, I think there's a level of communication that happens between individuals in the same room. And like the bandwidth is just a lot higher than what can happen over audio or video link. But sure, I mean, there's some, some people are very successful. Some companies are built with, you know, entirely distributed teams and they have people working together from all over the world and, you know, somehow they make it work, but it, it's not the norm. And I think if you're attempting to do that while doing all the other hard things around starting a company, then you're kind of setting yourself up for, to, for one additional challenge, even though the benefit is, of course, that your talent pool is the world, so you can recruit from anywhere. So in the case of autonomous vehicles, do you see the opportunities is going to be coming from things like insurance? Because you have data now on the cars and the cars become a computer, so you can actually do a lot more than even insuring the good drivers and the bad drivers. Or you know, Do you think in that autonomous cars itself is not the end? Because to me, me, whether it's cars or drones, the problem of driving, the problem of flying is already been solved. The regulation is very clear. What is not clear to me at the moment with autonomous vehicles is are the regulators that are regulating it are the right ones? Meaning, because it is actually more a network problem and an energy problem for the vehicles. Drones are not high enough battery charge. Autonomous cars will need 5G networks or beyond to be able to have good data to be able to get the awareness of the roads. So do you see the technologies are in that space or or out of that space? I mean, in terms of battery, that's, there's already like, I mean, the market opportunity for that is so immense. There's like so much pressure already to build better batteries. So many teams are trying to do that. So whatever like is physically possible, I'm sure we'll achieve it within some frame of time. And similarly for higher bandwidth mobile networks, there's already like so much demand for it. So, you know, the carriers and the, the manufacturers of, of their equipment, etc., they're doing what they can to push it out. Whether we're going to have autonomous vehicles or not, so I think autonomous vehicles will be one of many consumers of, you know, more bandwidth with for sure there's an opportunity in providing that bandwidth that opportunity is there with or without autonomous vehicles i think everyone wants more bandwidth all the time yeah yeah. we're we're talking about that from that perspective but what i'm saying is that actually 
where autonomous vehicles' real problems are is still between power and communication. As in, there may be innovations that can be built on top. Like for example, there may be software that could change the way how, that maybe optimize the way how these navigations are moving, you know? It could also be like video streaming. Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, there's there's still be a lot of like opportunities for sort of adjacent industries and, you know, adjacent innovation i think i mean similarly if you look at the existing car industry there's the car consumer brands that we all know of but then there's like thousands of, of other companies that we've never heard of if you're not in the industry that, that supply these companies and like probably similarly you know you might if you buy a self-driving tesla then you know that'll have technology from a ton of other suppliers and someone will provide the video streaming and someone will provide something else i think a lot of opportunities adjacent to this for sure i do think that and the major innovation is that simply you don't have to drive and then that'll get people on board. Then even if it's like, I think it'll be better even from the start, but even if the driving is a bit less efficient, so you use you know more power and you get five minutes later to work, that's entirely acceptable for not having to drive yourself you know, unless you're, you're out to drive for fun. That's the killer app in a sense. Anything else is like sugar on top, like you, you know, icing on the cake. You get to watch video or, you know, you get there faster, you lose less energy, there's less congestion on the street. You know, all of those things are great. All of those things will come. But as soon as we can get a car that we don't have to drive ourselves, I think, I think market adaption will happen quickly. So you watched Black Panther recently in the movie? I haven't yet. No, no. I must confess, I haven't been to the movies, like to a real, I, I watch movies on, on flights, but I haven't been to a real cinema since becoming a parent two years ago. So what is interesting is the virtual and augmented reality piece because in that movie, there was a point where what they did was the person is actually driving the car from a lab, but the self-driving car is actually moving with the person on the car. So it's actually like a virtual and augmented reality experience, which is why I brought it up because it may be best to talk about virtual and augmented reality from that perspective. Yeah, and there was a proposal around that recently too, right? I think it was from a regulator in the United States that they were saying that, you know, sort of an intermediate to allowing fully autonomous vehicles on the roads would be to have like autonomous vehicles with a remote backup driver that could take over in case of any issues. It would be interesting to see that work actually in the US where you do have a surprisingly bad cell phone networks in many parts. But yeah, I mean, sort of having have someone who can drive your car remotely. Sure, why not? Well, but that's also the other point, right? I mean, virtual and augmented reality, the application seems to work mainly in entertainment and gaming. I mean, for augmented reality, the best application killer app is Pokemon Go. Right. So far. <laughs> so far. But there are obviously, there are a lot more other things to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And I, I mean, this is another one of those that's been going through a couple of iterations. Like, you know, virtual reality was, was a big thing in the 90s. And then it never took off because technology wasn't there. And now we have, you know, another two decades of, you know, more slow and tech miniaturization and like better screens and better sensors and, you know, much better manufacturing capacity. You know, we'll have a lot more hardware and we have a lot more software coming out. It's, I think it's hard to say whether this is going to be the hype cycle when it really takes off or whether it's going to fizzle out again. There's still be a lot of interesting applications. Still, no one has been able to bring a piece of hardware to the market that has really gone mainstream, that has replaced. What was the ideal virtual reality experience for you? would be this is a good question to answer the jobs to be done right right the ultimate experience is when you have kind of a direct connection onto your into your mind right when you have the the brain machine interface where it can send data directly into that, that is indistinguishable from coming from your own senses then you have a truly 
like virtual reality that is indistinguishable from the real one. And I think that'll happen. It'll, it'll take some time, of course. Like, so are you purchasing the Magic Leap <laughs> goggles that are coming up this year? I don't know. I'll, I'll take a look at them. We'll see. Yeah, I have the DJI goggles for the Mavic Pro. So, I mean, that's the experience. There's another part of the question that I thought would be interesting to think about in terms of augmented reality. I mean, if you think about if you're a bit, you have been into China, definitely, and you have seen what WeChat can do with QR codes. I mean, that's a very good direct transaction interface for augmented reality. I, I think people don't see it that way. Yeah. Through, you mean using your phone for... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To scan a QR code and then you get something. But do you going to see a, a different kind of interface that is going to change this augmented reality? I think we're not even going to use or need the the QR codes. I mean, maybe they'll be there kind of more for familiarity and to communicate to the person that this is something you can scan. But you know, with with computer vision progressing, and you know, we, we might as well just scan the item. I mean, look at the Amazon Go stores, for example. You don't, you don't need to scan anything. You just walk in and like take the goods you want to buy and put them in your bag and walk out. And then you know you, your Amazon account is charged and no one needed to scan anything. I think well, the phones will get to that point as well. I don't know. Actually, they have to because you have to scan because your mobile app is actually collecting your checkouts from there in the Amazon Go case. Because I remember that was what it does. and But the, the part where you're taking the thing, yes, that part, the tracking of the inventory is done by Amazon and not by... And I think that's what's interesting on that. Andres, any last words on technology? Or any of the four that we missed out or we haven't talked about? No, no, I think, I mean, we've, I mean obviously you could talk about, you know, any of these for, for any amount of time. We could go on all day. I think uh, we've covered a lot. I think there's a lot of interesting things with that. Or there's a few things that I think will have like as large impacts as probably not as AI, but as any of the other three on, on things going forward that we, you know, we haven't covered and they aren't really in my field of expertise either. So you'll probably have a lot more knowledgeable guests on board to cover these, but like in, you know, genetic engineering, synthetic biology, that's the two other fields where I think, you know, a lot is happening. A lot of investments are going in, of course, but I think they're also getting to a point where we're going to start to see a lot of impact on people, on society. It'll challenge a lot of norms. They'll, you know, ultimately force people to question what it really means to be human and you know, ultimately we'll probably start kind of diverging um, humanity into different subspecies that just go in different directions. And that'll be very interesting for society to deal with. So between all of these things, there's a lot. It's going to be an interesting century ahead of us for sure. Andres, many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, in closing, I want to ask you two questions. First one is, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything that recently made an impact to your work and personal life? I've been a sci-fi fan all my life. One book, or rather three books, that's been on my reading list for quite a while that I finally took time to read over the holidays was The Three-Body Problem by Leo Zixin. And now everyone who speaks Chinese is going to laugh at my pronunciation. No, you pronounce it correctly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to me, it was so many things that came together. It's a book that I've been wanting to read for quite a long time since it came out in English. But, you know, living in Singapore, being in Asia, in a society influenced to a large extent by Chinese culture and, you know, hearing from a lot of people who have also read the book. And, you know, it's kind of the first Chinese sci-fi story that has gotten a lot of international acclaim. Very, very interesting to read it while living here. And it's very, most like sci-fi as a genre is quite dominated by American literature. And, you know, even though a lot of authors of sci-fi, they do obviously try to imagine a world in the future where, you know, maybe countries don't even exist anymore and, you know, people kind of live in space and whatever. But there's still this, this sort of, even though they kind of represent people from all parts of Earth, it's still this sort of default, you know, assumption of American culture 
underneath everything. And that's it's very interesting to see, to read such a, a story coming out of a, of a different culture, because, you know, similarly, the three-body problem, there's a world, you know, kind of starting now or even, even in the past, but then progressing quite a, some time into the future. And it, it represents people from everywhere, but sort of the default that it falls back to is, is Chinese culture. So that's, you know, very different to have, uh, very cool to have that different perspective. You know, other than that, he represents an interesting and somewhat depressing solution to the question of like, why aren't we hearing from any aliens out there, you know, with, you know, the universe being not only so big, but also so old. You should have had many, many, many civilizations evolving way before us. So the galaxy should be full of them but we're not seeing any of them. And I'm not going to spoil the story, but he represents a very interesting answer to like the question of why we're not hearing about anyone. It's something that you keep thinking of for quite a while after finishing the book, I think. So the cosmologist in me and also a sci-fi fan in me would tell you that's called the Fermi Paradox. Yes. Um, it's pretty well known for that. Yes. It is pretty interesting to look at this book from another lens by saying that what happens instead of a democracy discovering alien civilization, you have a communist government with a cultural revolution discovering aliens. Yes. That really that is probably why this book was the first Hugo winner on that. I would just put one recommendation on top of it because we've been talking technology and the themes that you've been alluding to in the conversation is about whether we have an optimistic or pessimistic view of the future. So what I'm going to recommend is a book by Steven Pinker called Enlightenment Now. And if you have read Better Angels of Our Nature, which is about humanity actually getting less and less violent, you probably might want to read Enlightenment now. For me, I'm a fan of the Enlightenment. So I think this is one book, if you are a techno optimist, this is the book to read. <laughs> and my last question to you, Andres, how do my audience find you? I think probably the easiest way is if you go on the website approach.world, uh, you'll find my email address. It's the easiest way to get to me. And you know, I also have kind of a, an open Twitter and Facebook feeds, just reach out through any channel that you're comfortable with, but email is probably the best. It's getting fun to actually have you on Twitter conversation because I always like my audience to tweet to me with questions and, and, and asking me things that I probably sometimes may, may, may know or may not know. So you can find me at Bernard Leung. You can find me at bernardleung.com and of course find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast and everywhere else. And tweet to me, give us a five-star rating on iTunes because it helped us to be discovered better. Once again, Andres, thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for having me on the show.